Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. Do you ever find yourself thrown into a lifestyle of activity-driven exhaustion? Do you deeply crave rest and peace in the midst of it all? God established Sabbath, rest, at the creation of the world, and Jesus promised rest for our souls, yet we don't seem to find it. In this series, we learn how to embrace the Sabbath in our lives. If you'd like to visit and attend in person, come join our services on weekends, Saturday at 5 or Sundays, 9 and 10.30. We're going to begin with uh, our scripture reading, and then we're going to dive in to a uh, third and final series uh, of the series on rest today. Please follow as I read from Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. The Yale Happiness Course, previously known as Psych 157, the Science of Well-Being, has been the most popular course ever offered at Yale in its 320-year existence. When they offered it in the spring of 2018, within hours, over 1,200 students had signed up to take the happiness course, and they had to put it in the largest gathering space in New Haven. When COVID shut Yale down in March 2020, they decided to offer the course online in a 10-week module. And to date, 3.3 million people have registered to take the happiness course at Yale. Now, the premises are a bit interesting. They suggest that you have three practices or disciplines in your life to help you get happy. One, sleep. Can I get an amen in the house? Woo! They actually have students keep a sleep journal and they study the science of sleep and you track what you eat before you sleep, and you track what you dream about it. It's just a fascinating part. The second thing, a gratitude journal. They believe that it's gratitude more than anything else that can shape the way you view your circumstances. And if we just willingly become more thankful, that can dramatically change the happiness quotient in our lives. And the third part of the happiness course, practice random and costly acts of kindness to strangers, friends, and family. It's that simple. 
Now, what is, I think, ironic, if not surprising, is that those practices seem counterintuitive to the way that we usually pursue happiness. The way that we normally pursue happiness is what researchers call the hedonic treadmill. Hedonic from the word hedonism. Hedonism means the relentless pursuit of pleasure. Usually to get happy, we think that pleasure's out there and we go hard after it. But what the research suggests is that the pursuit of pleasure falls under the law as subject to the law of diminishing returns. That is, the more you seek it, the more boring it becomes over time, the deeper you must go in the seeking before you know it, it's become a god to you, this pursuit of pleasure, and you'll be even more unhappy. So, the Yale Happiness Course suggests that the secret to happiness is getting outside of yourself beyond your own pleasure, and actually giving your life away for others. Now, all sounds pretty good, if not cheesy. It is Yale. Um, But do you see the problem? I hope you do. There's a problem with that approach. Here it is. Their solution is no longer an act of service done out of love, done because it's the right way to live, the highest good in the pursuit of happiness, according to Yale, is moi. So it's not a deed done in love for another person, and it's not a deed done in in any kind of respect for a higher moral authority. It's about me. And you, you realize what they've done, right? Is they've just changed the hedonic treadmill for the religious treadmill, because that's what the essence of religion is. Let me just unpack that for just a moment. I know with Yale, we're we're getting deep here. Uh, Jesus said that a religious deed is, is not in and of itself religious. He said that praying is not religious. He said that alms and giving is not religious. He said that fasting is not religious. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, He actually contrasts the religious Pharisees and the way they did their prayers and giving and fasting with His disciples. And He said, you too, my followers who want to flourish in the kingdom of God, you will pray and fast and give. So it's not about the deeds. Do you know what it's about? Why we do the deeds. And to do the deeds with our self-interest as the primary reason, do you know what that's called? Religion. Religion. To be seen, to be noticed, to be valued. Religion. And all that they've done is trade one treadmill for another. And to all of us who are religious, and by the way, everyone worships something, Jesus says, come unto me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You know, I started writing this sermon actually sitting where you were right now two weeks ago when Elliot was preaching. He said something that I've not been able to get away from or stop thinking about. He said, 
that in this text that we've read in Matthew 11, that it's the only place in all 89 chapters of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus actually talks about His own heart. The only place. Think about that. Understand that in both Hebrew and Greek, Greco-Roman cultures, the heart was the place where everything sits. It's your motivational headquarters. It's your animating center. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. Your heart. It drives you. It, 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 it fuels you through life. Proverbs, the, the Hebrews thought of the heart this way in Proverbs chapter 4. They said, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So here we have Jesus in Matthew 11 saying that my heart, my motivational center is explained this way, gentle and humble in heart. Now, I, I, again, I just, this is really interesting. If someone were to ask you this week, hey, I, you've told me you're a Christian, I've been watching you, tell me who do you think Jesus is? What's he like? And I do hope you get asked that question this week. That would be awesome. Do you know what would honor Jesus and please him most? Is if you said, Jesus, he is gentle and humble in heart. One writer put it this way. If Jesus were to come to live in our century and he had a Facebook page, under the about section about you, he would have written, gentle and humble in heart. This is who Jesus is. So what I want to do in our time together as we get prepared to go to have the Lord's Supper is I want to first describe the heart of Jesus, gentle and humble. What does that mean? Because if we understand that, then I think we'll be able to understand how His heart can bring rest to our restless hearts. And we'll look at a couple of examples of that in our culture. How the restful heart of Jesus brings rest to our churning hearts. Sound good? You with me? Let's do it. Gentle. It's used three times in Matthew's Gospel, and all of them have become well-known. The first is here, as we've read in Matthew 11. Uh, Brian, if we could put that text back up. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Uh, Port Brian, I have jumped around diff six different places uh, this morning already. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. The next place that's used was previously in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, another quite well-known uh, statement that Jesus makes, both of these are from his mouth, when he says, blessed or flourishing are the meek. So gentleness and meekness are, are usually English translations of the same word in the New Testament. So you'll see it meekness or gentleness. And it's the idea of meekness. They flourish and they actually inherit the earth, Jesus. And then the third place it's used is when Jesus, later in Matthew, on what we call Palm Sunday, is riding into Jerusalem for the last week of his life before he dies. It says, 
fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 that Jesus comes gently riding a donkey. And we're going to unpack that a little bit in a few moments. What does it mean? Briefly, it means this. Gentleness is a controlling desire to hold your power in the service of others. Hold your power so that others can benefit. Now, I like that description, controlled, because in extra-biblical Greek literature from Jesus' day, this word is used often to describe the taming of an animal. So a tame animal is a gentle animal or a meek animal. Now I want to ask you, does the mere fact that an animal is tame mean that it has forfeited its strength? No, it does not mean. It just means that it's learned to control its strength in service to its master. It's as strong as it ever was, but yet it holds that strength to do what the master once done. Gentleness. Now, on the outside, gentleness comes across person to person like this. Someone who is kind. Someone who is controlled. Someone who has great poise even when there's emotional thunderstorms going on around them. Someone who's gentle can hold their power and respond to the situation with poise and control. On the inside, Where it comes from is this idea that a person can be gentle because they know and believe that God is sovereign and holds all the needs of our lives and all the future of our lives in His hands so we can trust Him. We can actually yield to a higher purpose and respond with gentleness in a situation because we trust Him. So, to wrap this word up, you know who I think of when I think of a gentle person? I know I'm a week early here, but I think you'll agree with me. I think of a mother. I think especially of a mother of young babies and toddlers. You want to see someone practicing gentleness. When a toddler blows up, and in their mind, it's the end of the world, the roof goes off the top of their head, and they explode. It's that gentle mother who does not react harshly, or become exasperated, or lose control, or respond to them as if they're an adult. No, they hold their power for the benefit of the other, and they realize that this is a transforming moment and an opportunity. Now, (laughs) I know that's probably not the first thought that comes to mind, but yet it's that gentleness that allows that environment to say, I'm not going to react like an emotional thunderstorm. I'm going to hold my power and respond in this moment in a way that's the best for this child, even though they're screaming their guts out. Gentleness. Do you see it? Gentleness. Holding power in service of another. That's Jesus' heart. Now, the second word is interesting as well. It's the word humble. You'll often see it translated also as lowly, and let me explain why. It's used 11 times in the New Testament, and it has this idea of being grounded uh, of, um, you know, in some places it's a virtue of the heart, where like in James 4, it says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And there the humble in this is this character of the heart that really attracts God's love and attention. Now, 
What's interesting of the 11 times in the New Testament, most of the time it's not used as the virtue of being humble. Do you know what it's used to describe? Circumstances. It's used to describe a person who finds themselves in a lowly place. So for instance, Brian, we could put that definition up. Humble means existing in a state of being thrust downward by life circumstance, as in of humble estate. Now that's a quote from Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 when she's singing and she just can't believe that the angel has visited her in her humble estate, her lowly place in life. Or to associate with the lowly, that's the quote that we heard recently, just the last few weeks when we were preaching through Romans and we were talking about getting over uh, our fear of the stranger and giving hospitality, especially to those who are in lowly overlooked and oppressed situations, we too enter and become lowly with them. You see, I think Jesus is so brilliant here because what he does is put two sides on a coin. It's a symbiotic relationship. Let me explain. When you practice gentleness, holding your power to serve another, you end up becoming accessible and approachable so that you end up in lowly circumstances because people are drawn to you they feel safe around you you're they're able to be themselves and express whatever's going on to you because they know you'll handle it with gentleness being gentle in practice leads to being lowly in places it's jesus that's his heart let's look at his life briefly and see how he was gentle in practice and lowly in places Real quick, I want to just go to a, just a few in the last week of his life. When he rode into town, Jerusalem, on Palm Sunday, that we call it, he could have said, this is it. I am the king. I will be acknowledged. I will be worshipped. I'm going to put my scepter in the ground, and everyone will fall on their knees and rightly worship me. In fact, the Jews believed that if Israel was ready, he would come riding a white stallion and everyone would know. Well, that is going to happen in Revelation 19. That is in front of us still. But in this case, Jesus holds his power. He gives up his rights and he's on a donkey beast of burden who's going to do the work of his father because he trusts his father's will go to thursday holy week jesus walks into the upper room they're about to take the lord's supper the last passover jesus had every right to expect especially knowing what's going to happen in the next 24 hours that he should have sat in a chair and the disciples should have washed his feet, comforted him, strengthened him. Every right. But Jesus lays aside those rights like he lays aside his outer garment, puts a towel around his waist, kneels, and washes the dirty feet of his disciples in a last moment of teaching that they would never forget. Hours after that, Jesus is arrested, betrayed by Judas, 
there's a, an armed group that's come to take him into custody. <laughs> In John's Gospel, a passage I've never gotten over, they go up to him and they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am He. That's the divine name. And John says that when he said, I am, the group fell down. Evidently, they got up. They proceeded to arrest him. Peter pulls a sword, slashes off a high priest servant's ear, and Jesus says, no! Now, you understand that Jesus had every right, Matthew says, to call 12 legions of angels to come down and say, enough! No. He lays down his right. He holds his power for the benefit of us. He is unjustly sentenced. Pilate says, do you realize what you're doing? How can you let this go on? And Jesus says to Pilate, the government leader, you would have no power if it weren't for me giving it to you. But Jesus holds His power and He lets things play out. Because 1 Peter tells us in chapter 2, here's why Jesus was submissive even to an unjust trial. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. This is Jesus, gentle and humble in heart. And then there's one more glimpse we need of Him this morning. It's the glimpse under which we worship week in and week out here in the room under the cross. Jesus is on the cross. And we know that He holds His power there in service of others. See, in the Mediterranean ancient world, there was an honor-shame culture. You pursued honor for yourself and your family, your reputation at all costs, and you avoided shame at all costs. And this is why the earliest followers of Jesus had this massive decision to make. Because there was most in the culture saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. If anyone would die like that, they're a pretender. There's no one who would willingly die like that and say that they have any sort of of anything and any greatness to offer to anyone. Not like that. We get a glimpse of this around the year 200 to 300 A.D. after Christ in an archaeological dig in Rome. They found the walls of an old prison house. It's on Palatine Hill. And here's a picture of it we're going to put up on the screen. This is actually put onto the wall of a jailhouse in Rome between 2 and 300 A.D. On the cross is Jesus. And He has a donkey's head. Because in the ancient world, a donkey was a symbol of stupidity. Of foolishness. And then you can see a man there raising his hand in adoration. And then in that sloppy Greek They've in, inscribed, this is the first you know, kind of anti-Christian graffiti that we know of. It says, Alexamenos worships his God. Scholars believe that what's here is a 
graffiti put by the Roman guards of an incarcerated Christian. And there's your options. right? Either you hold this man who died on a cross holding his power, saying that now greatness is recast as weakness, as submission, as being willing to give up your life in love for others. That's greatness. Or you don't buy any of it. And you graffiti it and you say, I cannot believe, to quote the Apostle Paul, in that kind of foolishness. There's the greatness. Greatness recast in the heart of Jesus as gentleness and humility. So, there's the heart of Jesus right in front of us, holding power, taking on lowly circumstances, even death on a cross, so that we could benefit. Gentle and lowly in heart. Now, how does his restful heart engage our heart and help with the churning, help put our hearts at rest? I would just like to take two kind of streams of our culture and talk about how Jesus brings rest to our hearts. The first, it, it, let's think about our culture. If we could say anything about our culture, we are a culture that loves to be noticed and seen. We are an Instagram culture. We live for followers. We've exchanged the hope of immortality with the hope of going viral. We've, in our quest to be known and noticed and viewed and liked, it's become the reason for existence. And you and I both know from both sides of that, that's a hard culture, that's a hard place. It's painful. This past week, I was listening to a song by Arcade Fire. They describe it this way in their song, Creature Comfort. We stand in the mirror and wait for the feedback, saying, God, make me famous. If you can't, just make it painless. Wow. There's pain in that kind of life, seeking approval, seeking to be noticed, seeking fame. And there's pain on both sides, right? Because I would say most of us in this room know the other side of that as well, where we've got the corner office. We've got the next job up. We, we got behind the podium. And we get there and we think, is that all? I'll never forget the most hated man in my life, Tom Brady. Being interviewed, and I can't remember now, it was on 60 Minutes, but I don't remember if it was his first Super Bowl, his second Super Bowl, or his third Super Bowl. But they interviewed him, and Brady says, you know, I thought when I got here it would feel different. I thought it would be you know, amazing. But what I keep asking myself is, is that all? I wonder how he's doing after seven, and God help us if there's like no more. Enough's enough. I read this morning in the Denver Post. I'm always looking for sermon illustrations. That's the only reason I read the papers. <laughs> there was a guy who made international news, international news, because over six years with a spreadsheet, 
He marked out 211 spaces at his grocery store and parked in each one of them over a six-year period. And he's famous! (laughs) Are you kidding me? Here's what he says. Six years is a long time. You think? It's a bizarre thing to sort of feel, but when it ended, there was real hollowness. He does not know yet what form or meaning his next project will take. Maybe some other kind of spreadsheet adventure because spreadsheets are great, but I'm done with car parks. What do we want when we want to be noticed? What do we want when we want to be seen? What do we want? Here comes Jesus, humble and gentle in heart. Here He comes. He's on the cross. We know the words that He says on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Today, thief, you will be with Me in paradise. John, there's your mom. My mom's your mom. Mom, there's your son. You're taken care of. I thirst. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every word Jesus says on the cross is either a fulfillment of a prophecy which is communicating to us that this was the purpose and center of everything now. Or it's actually Jesus saying with the Father's in mind, I see you. We live in a culture that thirsts and churns to be seen and from the cross, Jesus is saying, I see you. Maybe our heart was made not to get a thousand million likes from a crowd. Maybe our heart was made to be loved by one who made us and whose love and notice can calm the storm in here. I've never gotten over John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that scene where Christian is walking up the last hill and the Holy Spirit opens his eyes and he sees the cross. And as soon as he sees the cross, the burdens on his back roll off down the hill and into a sepulcher and they are no more. No more burdens. No more sins. And then Bunyan writes, Brian, again, I know I'm jumping ahead. The John Bunyan quote. Let's give thanks to our uh, slide operator this morning. (laughs) Brian is our Tom Brady. Will you accept that this morning, Brian? Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood Still a while to look and to wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease his burden. So he looked and looked again until the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. We never get over the gospel. It's not A, B, C, it's A to Z. 
We never get over what it's like to have our sins forgiven, what it's like to have our burdens carried, what it's like to have Jesus saying, even from the most lowly place, I see you. I see you. We live in a culture that thirsts to be seen. We live in a culture that thirsts to win, and quickly. We are an ambitious culture. We like to have lists. We like to have goals. We are a bucket list culture. And we go hard after them, whether they're you know, vocational, whether they're recreational, whether they're family, we go hard after them. And the problem is, as the 211 parking spaces attest, we get there and it's still like, what's next? What's next? I watched a great movie this past week, Jan and I. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Won an Oscar. Nomadland. Very interesting movie. Worth watching. Not with your kids. It's this group that travels around our nation in RVs. And they're looking for home. Here's just one character's speech. There's a lot of speeches in the movie that really reveal our culture right now. This is from Merle. I worked for corporate America, you know, for 20 years. And my friend Bill worked for the same company, and he had liver failure. A week before he was due to retire, HR called, called him in hospice and said, now let's talk about your retirement. And he died 10 years later. Days, sorry, days later. Having never been able to take that sailboat he bought out in his driveway, he missed out on everything. And he told me before he died, just don't waste any time, Merle. Don't waste any time. So I retired as soon as I could. I didn't want my sailboat to be in the driveway when I died. So yeah, it's not. My sailboat's out here in the desert. It's his RV. I watched that movie, amazing movie, but I kept hearing Wendell Berry's voice in my head, the farmer poet. In order for a place to feel like home, there must be some prospect of staying there. And my friends, don't know why you're here today, but I believe it's to hear this, you ain't staying here. You're not staying here. You will leave a sailboat in the driveway. Here comes Jesus, gentle and humble. And he says, we sang it this morning, I've come to connect you to my Father. Because there's no safe place in this world, there is a safe relationship in this world. In the 5th century, Augustine said, you are never safer than when you're sitting in the Father's lap. That's why Jesus came to all of us with churning hearts who are trying to find that next best thing to say, wait a minute. It's great to have a list. But what will really bring you Yale-like happiness is finding your place with the Father. Whom to know 
is love. 